Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Late last year, in 2021, the eyes of the world were on Glasgow, the city that hosted representatives from almost 200 countries as part of the global climate summit known as COP26. We witnessed two weeks of vigorous handshakes, tense negotiations and complex geopolitical disputes. And out of it all came an agreement called the Glasgow Climate Pact. The pact, for the first time, made explicit plans to address coal, the dirtiest of all the fossil fuels. But the final wording of the document is weaker than was originally planned. An agreement was finally reached last night, but there's controversy over the pledge about coal, which now says its use should be phased down rather than phased out. Fingers were quickly pointed at India and China, who reportedly led the dissent that resulted in this last-minute change to the pact. And the situation appeared to have reduced COP President Alok Sharma to tears. I apologise for the way this process has unfolded. Um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. This story added fuel to already burning international disputes over energy. And to an extent, there's hypocrisy here, because since COP26, we've seen fossil fuel projects continue to be approved in the UK as well as North America. But many people in the West still think it's not worth moving on renewable energy because, they argue, countries like China and India just aren't doing their bit. And their national plans so far reflect what appears to be a dangerous lack of urgency. So what's really going on? Is the energy transition only happening in the West? Or is the truth something very different? Hello and welcome to Inside the Energy Transition, a podcast about the bright future of green energy. I'm Lucy Yu, CEO of Centre for Net Zero. And I'm Giles Wittell, the editorial lead on climate and sustainability at Tortoise. In this series, we're exploring the biggest questions and debunking the most commonplace myths about the energy transition, one of the defining goals of our time. So, Lucy... If there's one thing I've done in my underutilized long years at the at the coal face of work, as it were, it's burned much too much jet fuel in flying around the world. And I can't help thinking 
that the reality is a bit more complex than the idea that the transition is just happening in the West and not happening anywhere else. What do you reckon? I'm sure you're absolutely right, Giles. And uh, that's what our guests here are going to discuss today. Excellent. So I suppose the question is then, if this is a myth, what's going on elsewhere in the world? And here to help answer that is Harsh Vijay Singh from the World Economic Forum. He leads on their Energy Transition Index, which ranks different countries around the world according to their progress in adopting renewable energy. Harsh, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Let me start by asking you what you would say to someone who told you the energy transition is only really happening in the West. It's an interesting question. We need to start by understanding that there is no single energy transition. Rather, there are energy transitions. Countries pursue energy transition pathways that are unique to their circumstances, that leverage local core competencies and also address local problems. Energy, as we know, is a critical enabler of modern economy and societies. It has been a pillar supporting economic growth and development for more than a century. So uh, what we need is a new clean energy mix, which is available to everyone at all times and at a price that everyone can afford. This is where the trade-offs come into picture. So while environmental sustainability is indeed paramount, we want to achieve that by making sure that transition balances the needs of economic growth, universal energy access, and energy security. And depending upon country-specific circumstances, these trade-offs lead to countries adopting different pathways. And these differences essentially materialize in terms of choice of the technologies, policy instruments, as well as the ambition or the pace of decarbonization in that specific country. From our own experience, benchmarking countries for the Energy Transition Index, which we have been doing for a decade at the World Economic Forum, we do see that more than 80% of the countries that we benchmark have improved their overall scores on this index over the past decade. And the countries with most improvements are some of the emerging economies. So I would say that it's not something that is only happening in in the West, but it is something which is quite universal and has been happening in every part of the world. Harsh, some specific examples would be really helpful to sort of see what you mean. Sure. So let's take a few countries, for example. Uh, I would pick Sweden first, which has consistently ranked among the top three countries in our on our index over the years. Policymakers, businesses, consumers in Sweden have taken a series of steps in the right direction. This includes having a law for climate change targets, environmentalism being prominent in political discourse, as well as high level of consumer awareness, and also reducing carbon emission at a fast pace over the past three decades. However, Sweden also benefits from attributes such as access to hydropower, which provides half of its electricity production. It is a heavily industrialized country, a sophisticated economy, an educated workforce, and has a relatively small population with high per capita income. So these factors act as tailwinds in support of transition to a low carbon energy mix in Sweden. The scale of challenge there is relatively small, and there are sufficient resources to invest in transition and to take risks that many other countries may not be able to take right now. For example, let's take India, a country of more than a billion people, a fast-growing economy with a rapidly expanding middle class where uh, per capita energy consumption is still quite low. Uh, 
India needs more energy at affordable prices for both households and industries. So, the focus of energy transition in India so far has mainly been to prioritize proven technologies such as solar PV and wind. So, this is fundamentally a different pathway from what Sweden might be taking, which is taking more risks, but it's a fail-safe strategy in case of India. Now, if we were to talk about countries that export fossil fuels, such as many of those in the Middle East, where fossil fuel export revenue has been a major component of their GDP, take UAE, for example. It has been prioritizing technologies such as green hydrogen, carbon capture, and nuclear. These choices leverage their existing core competencies in operating heavy industries. Oil and gas has been a mainstay of UAE's economy for a long time. So there is both legacy infrastructure, workforce, skills, know-how for heavy industries. So they have chosen technologies that leverage these kind of competencies. Looking at these three countries, I think it gives a fair amount of uh, insights into how different countries are taking, making different choices when it comes to energy transition. And Harsh, given what you've said about the differences between different countries' respective energy transitions, does it still make sense to rank or to benchmark different countries? The purpose of rankings like ours, it is not to say that every country needs to be like Scandinavian countries. What we try to do through our benchmarking is to help countries leverage best practices from other countries who might be in similar socioeconomic circumstances and hence offer good practices which can inform policies, reforms, investments in other countries. So the benchmarking is useful, but it is not to say that just follow the North Star and, and everybody be like Scandinavia, but it is to learn from your peers and also to learn from your past. I think it's fair to say there's quite a lot of finger pointing in the West at big countries like India and China, even though we know that on a per capita basis, energy consumption is low, in some cases very low, the sheer scale of the countries and their dependence still on certain fossil fuels means that they are, by any standard, a big part of of the problem. But is it fair to be pointing fingers, given history, at India and China? India and China are the most prominent examples, but the story is pretty much the same across all emerging economies. What we need to understand is that climate change is a collective action problem, and pointing fingers is not really going to get us anywhere. For India and China, it is true that coal continues to be a part of their energy mix, but the scale of challenges in India and China is vast. China perhaps adds more renewable energy capacity annually than the entire power generation capacity of several countries. And it has been doing so consistently over many years. Similarly, the share of renewable energy in power generation in India has expanded rapidly. And both of these countries have essentially offered that kind of scale, which has led to cost reductions across a range of renewable energy technologies that might not have been possible otherwise. So while most emerging economies are dealing with complex trade-offs and the seeming lack of progress might be there, but it is not due to some ideological differences or lack of intent. I don't think this is an us versus them problem, and it wouldn't help us to point fingers at certain countries. And Harsh, if I may, you've looked at energy transitions around the globe. What makes you most optimistic? So I would point to two things. One is the potential of technology. For an industry of this size, this old, and with this complexity, the pace of change that we have seen in the past 10 years is unprecedented. 
Second thing I would like to point is the youth. They are more affected by the current problems. And given the uh, speed and scale of awareness and uh, mobilization of the youth that we see across the world, I think they would provide the much needed uh, solution to this problem by not having the legacy mindset that the current generation has. When the youth of today takes charge of the state of affairs in future, then I think they will deal with this with a radically different mindset and that will lead to foster problem solving. Let's zoom in now on China as a crucial case study. It's the world's largest country and, as a result, the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Now, many commentators like to blame China for inadequate action on climate change, especially in the wake of COP26. But if you look a little closer, the picture isn't quite that simple. And here to break down the subject for us is Isabel Hilton, a veteran journalist and founder of the climate news site China Dialogue. Welcome, Isabel. Thank you. Good to be here. Isabel, is it fair to point the finger at China when it comes to the global energy transition? How should we be thinking generally about China's role in this? Well, it's fair to the degree that, as everybody knows, China's the world's biggest emitter. China would say it's not fair in the sense that China has followed a development path which was essentially laid down by the British Industrial Revolution and has pretty much been followed by everyone else who's industrialized ever since. The problem now is that we know about climate change and anything that China does is on such a scale that the impact is very large indeed. And thirdly, that China has fueled its industrial revolution uh, substantially by coal. So, you know, that combination means that China is, if you like, an easy target. Now, China has always participated in global climate processes. It was a signatory very early on to UNFCCC, to the Kyoto Protocol. It's never left, unlike the United States. And for much of that time, as a developing country, it was not obliged to take any mitigation action. That all changed with Paris. And since Paris, we've seen China take, at least on the surface, a much more progressive approach towards climate. It hasn't shown up substantially in the emissions yet, although there is a lot of action in China which is climate related. Can we just be clear about the targets that they have set themselves? They, they've set themselves some targets since Paris. Are they adequate or weak compared with what's required and compared with the rest of the world? In Paris, they promised to peak emissions by 2030. And that was regarded even then as a pretty loose target. And that's back in 2015. At the UN General Assembly nearly two years ago, Xi Jinping made two significant promises, as he would put it. One was to reach net zero by 2060. And the second was a reiteration of the 2030 peak. Now, it's quite clear that the 2030 peak is not Paris compliant. The later you leave it, the harder it is to, you know, scramble down to net zero. And because it, it's such a big emitter, to peak 
before 2030 is pretty essential for China to reach that target. I mean, that said, China's not alone in this. It's just, as I say, China being the world's biggest emitter, it's not terribly reassuring that we're not seeing slightly more urgent action. Isabel, how important is China to other countries' energy transitions? Probably China's most important contribution to date is its capacity to bring industrial manufacturing at scale to bear on the technologies of the energy transition. And this happened for two reasons. There comes a point in the high emitting, high carbon, rapid development model where you essentially run out of steam. And and if you look at the trajectory of the other Asian tigers at Taiwan, at Japan, at South Korea, they've all essentially followed the same model. So you bring your population in off the countryside, you have surplus labor in the countryside, you bring them into factories, you start by making very low added value goods, it's all relatively inefficient, but it gives the kind of boost to the economy that you need to begin development. And there comes a point when those wages rise, you price yourself out of that particular market and you have to get smarter. If you don't get smarter, you get stuck in the middle income trap. And there are many countries, most countries get stuck in the middle income trap. So China was reaching the point in the early 2000s where these processes were beginning to kick in. It had had two decades of extremely rapid growth. This had caused a lot of environmental damage to air, to water, and of course, climate damage. But it was also beginning to run out of steam. At the same time, by 2005, China was the world's biggest carbon emitter. And it was well understood in Beijing that this was not a good look diplomatically. And it would threaten China's leadership of other emerging economies, as China liked to position itself as kind of leading country in G20, as representing the poor of the world, you know, in confrontation with the rich. But many of those poor countries were suffering from the effects of China's carbon emissions. So these two things come together in the middle of the first decade of this century, as China starts to rethink its industrial policy and rethink its climate policy. And they come together in massive investments in the production of renewable technologies. In fact, all the technologies that the world will need for a carbon transition. That includes electric mobility, includes batteries, wind, solar and nuclear. All of those China begins to invest in and as a result has brought down the price for the rest of the world of those technologies to the point where it is cheaper now in most geographies to build a renewable energy system than to build a fossil dependent one. And that is a, that has altered the economics of the energy transition for everybody. And that is a contribution that I think we should recognise that China has made. Isabel, can I just jump in there? Because unlike the Asian tigers that you mentioned, China's uh, is a command economy. The country is still run by the Communist Party. Do we have a paradox here that the capitalist world, in a sense, owes communist China a debt uh, because it's its command economy, which has been able to take these huge decisions that have delivered huge economies of scale 
in wind and especially solar. Yes, you could say that. And, and certainly it, it ought to be acknowledged. I, I don't think it lets China off the hook of its own emissions. Um, but it's absolutely and it's been an enabler of an energy transition if others will take the policy decisions to pursue that energy transition. So, yes, there is a, a debt. Of course, I think that there is also a downside to China's approach to manufacturing, which is in the role of state subsidies, for example, to manufacturing industry, putting other countries' sectors out of business, and certainly some questionable IP practices before we get too overwhelmed with gratitude. But, you know, it's nevertheless, we are where we are. And this has been an important contribution. What's a reliable headline number for China's current reliance on coal? And I mean, it's a Assuming it's a big number, what are they going to replace it with eventually? So the percentage of coal currently in China's energy mix is about 58%, and that has to come down to zero in effect, unless there's a miracle over carbon capture, which I personally don't believe in. And the plan, insofar as you know, the plan is elaborated, there is, again, a massive increase in renewable provision in China. China has already got the largest installed capacity of renewables, and it has big nuclear plants, and it does have already big hydro. So those are the basic elements of China's energy transition. But it it is going to require a great deal more uh, storage, a great deal more wind, and a great deal more solar to bring it to fruition. Isabel, when we start peeling back the layers of the onion here, there's an awful lot of nuance uh, to this topic. What do you think the media often gets wrong about China's energy transition? Well, I guess one of the problems is that given that the geopolitical tensions are now so high, China's climate policy tends to be read through a geopolitical lens. And that's not entirely untrue. I think the geopolitics have raised concerns about energy security. And if you are concerned with energy security in China, then you might be a little more reluctant to let go of coal than you would otherwise be. This is not a moment as far as China is concerned to take risks because other than coal and its own installed renewable capacity, including uh, nuclear and hydro, everything else is imported. And it's imported mostly still by sea, a lot of it through the Malacca Straits. And China has, for the past nearly 10 years now, pursued a policy of diversification of supply which includes building pipelines and building things like the new port in Gwadar in Pakistan, which will be an energy port. All these things in order to try to spread the risk of the Malacca Straits. But it's still there. China is still dependent on imported energy to keep things going. Now, that means that when tensions are high policy becomes more conservative. And I think we don't really make much allowance for that when we're looking at China's own capacity. The other thing I think that people get wrong when they look at China is that they assume because China is a one-party state, Xi Jinping can essentially do what he likes. You pull a lever in Beijing and something happens in a distant province and you forget that China has politics too. It's just that it's not very visible. It's not, it doesn't behave the same way as democratic politics. You know, the, the leadership is spared the electoral cycle every four or five years. 
but it needs to maintain legitimacy nevertheless with its population. And that is uh, substantially through performance legitimacy. So the pressure to keep delivering jobs, to keep delivering economic growth in the absence of political liberties is quite strong. You can't run a country entirely on repression. You run it on very positive messaging and on delivering a better way of life or a better standard of living to people. So that's the pressure that comes from China's political model. And I think that we tend to underestimate how strong that pressure can be. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We've heard how each country has to go through their own energy transition and how that transition will look very different for China, for example, than it will for the UK. But what about for countries that are still very early in their development? How are the world's poorest countries doing when it comes to their own energy transitions? And how do they align their economic needs with environmental ones? Rose Matisso has spent much of her career asking these questions. She's currently research director at the Energy for Growth Hub, working in particular on energy transitions in sub-Saharan Africa. Rose, it's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with a bit of scene setting. When it comes to low and middle income countries, what's happening in relation to the energy transition? Are they going through their own transitions? Uh, yes, definitely. And the energy transition in low income countries, especially in, in regions like sub-Saharan Africa, which I think about a lot, this transition is really about four objectives. So the first is achieving universal energy access. So hundreds of millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa and developing Asia simply lack electricity or access to clean cooking. And, you know, this is scandalous and shameful in the 21st century, and we need to solve this basic problem. The second objective is powering economic growth in productive sectors. The third is building climate resilience. So a change in climate means massive infrastructure development to adapt to extreme weather, droughts, extreme temperatures, you know, and a lot of this is energy intensive. So think air conditioning, irrigation, desalination. Finally, the fourth objective is obviously locking in low carbon infrastructure in the long term. You know, poor countries, we are working towards a net zero future. Greenfield sites is an opportunity to avoid mistakes and to do things differently. And the one thing that you'll notice that is missing from my this kind of objective list is emissions mitigation in the energy sector is not an immediate concern. There's just no emissions to cut. We know that... In many contexts, it's dangerous to generalise about a huge area with nearly 50 
different countries. But insofar as you can about sub-Saharan Africa, what are the unique challenges that they face in the energy transition? As you say, almost nothing to cut at the moment, but one way or another, that's going to change, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I think each of these objectives on that list, it's just a massive list if you were to work on it one at a time, and we have to optimize for all of these things. And this will involve some trade-offs. In many poor countries, natural gas will be an important transitional fuel. But then the international community is increasingly hesitant to support any kind of fossil investments in poor countries and imposing finance bans in some cases. Um, Interestingly, these very same countries are obviously investing big time in natural gas for their own domestic use. But anyway, you know, this kind of climate hypocrisy is constraining poor countries because you have to make decisions for the short to midterm. And those needs are so pressing. You know, you have to lift people out of poverty. You have to adapt in a very difficult situation. But then you also have to keep the long term. You don't want to lock in infrastructure that is not part of the future. And you need to rely on international partners for financing that also have their priorities and want to dictate X, Y, and Z. So this is this is just one classic example of the delicate dance that these countries are having to do. And Rose, you opened by talking about four objectives for these energy transitions and that each of those objectives was really a very large challenge in its own right. Could you give us an example of the scale of the challenge, say in Kenya, perhaps a country that's been a focus of your work? You know, it's often actually great to be from Kenya if you're in the energy sector, um, just because Thanks to our unique endowment of resources, uh, we're already generating 90% of our power from new renewables. A lot of this is geothermal. So in the Kenyan Rift Valley, we have a lot of renewable potential, and this actually extends into the entire Horn of Africa. And if you go into countries like Ethiopia, you have a lot of hydro, you have a lot of geothermal. But, you know, I would say still, despite our great endowment in Kenya, our big challenges in the power sector is stuff like modernizing our grid infrastructure, we need to improve transparency in sector governance. We need to attract public and private sector finance at scale. And, you know, another interesting thing is in poor countries, you also have to stimulate demand. You, you know, you can't just do it the like white elephant way and like build a lot of infrastructure. There needs to be existing demand and stimulating that requires a lot of kind of macro and microeconomic factors to be correct. So, you know, right now in Kenya, the per capita power consumption is about 168 kilowatt hours per person per year. And this is less than the annual power consumption of a fridge. So like your fridge at home is consuming more power per year than the typical Kenyan. So, you know, this means that we are completely missing energy consuming productive sectors. You know, those are the what generate jobs and growth. And so we really need to stimulate demand. Like the energy infrastructure we're hoping to build has to be met by demand or it'll there'll be a massive mismatch. So A bunch of other poor countries face the same challenges of like updating infrastructure, stimulating demand, but often with this added constraint of a less than ideal energy resource endowment. Rose, you talk about stimulating demand. That will have to be met by energy that is affordable. How important is it that the price of renewables is coming down? Uh, It's been coming down fast and we assume it'll go on coming down. Will that lead to an alignment of the priorities that you set out at the beginning? Definitely. You know, the dramatic fall in costs of solar, wind, batteries, etc., you know, over the past couple of decades, this has been a major game changer. And 
For this reason, decarbonizing the power sector is actually one of, I think, probably what people think of as the easiest kind of problem to solve. And then that's why everyone is like, let's electrify everything because we can make, you know, the power system green. We hope to see similar trends in how to decarbonize sectors like transport or industry, um, though this will take a lot of investment in innovation. I think what's important to remember is that many of this optimistic narratives around falling costs of green tech fail to account for broader infrastructure and ecosystem costs. So, you know, there's a whole range of really unsexy stuff like overhauling dilapidated uh, power grids to, you know, figuring out how to ensure that this transition doesn't displace a lot of livelihoods for people. You know, there are all of these other kind of squishy non-tech challenges that are just as important sometimes more so than the buzzy tech narrative. So I always say, yes, technology innovation is great. The pace is really impressive and that makes all of this possible, but there's more than tech to the problem. On that, in Kenya, for example, is there, if we're being optimistic about this for a second, potential of creating whole new renewable energy industries which create whole new categories of skilled, well-paying jobs. Exactly. So I think this is why these uh, energy poor countries are so interesting, because it's a really, in, in many ways, a massive greenfield site. South Africa, our neighbor to the south, is looking very much like one of the Western countries because they have this massive coal economy that is completely entrenched. And so their transition questions are really focused around displacement. In Kenya, it's all about opportunity, building up the skill set. And actually, interestingly, geothermal is a really, really, really interesting example where Kenya over the past, you know, like five or so decades has built a lot of depth on geothermal, not just scientific research, exploration, engineering. And now we are actually like exporting experts to the parts of the region. And so I think that there's a real opportunity to build that in all of these other kind of green economy sectors. But that will, again, that's the kind of thing that is is not reflected in the charts that show solar prices going down, that you need to kind of build the workforce. I want to talk now about justice. Countries such as Kenya have been at the mercy of imperial nations for centuries. So some people would argue that in a just world they should probably get much more leeway when it comes to their energy transitions. Do you agree? And is that happening? (laughs) No. And as I laugh, I'm also crying. No, it's not happening. Um, The truth is we just simply don't have enough leverage and bargaining power on the global stage. And, you know, this is just like geopolitics 101. That's just how it works, you know. But, you know, I would say in the energy and climate space, this is changing slowly. I think as a result of increased solidarity, not just between African countries, but these natural blocks that are forming between other low income countries. Um, and, you know, where you'll find, for example, small island states that, you know, in the geopolitical world of leverage and bargaining power would have none, but are finding ways to really exert outsized influence. And so I think more of this is happening where kind of alliances are being formed. Uh, At COP26, we saw this faction make some really strong demands, uh, forcing stuff like compensation for losses and damages on the agenda, you know, and so this is changing. And we're hoping to see more of this at COP27, which, of course, will be on our home turf in Egypt. This will include pushing for more flexible pathways and timelines for our energy transitions and obviously support to achieve them. 
But, you know, I will just say, you know, undoing these paternalistic power dynamics between the West and the rest of the world, it takes a long time. And, you know, it's not the kind of thing that can be just handed to us. We have to find ways to create our own leverage, our own bargaining powers and force the West and other countries to engage with us as peers. And what ultimately makes you most hopeful that that could actually happen, that the transition that we've been talking about for sub-Saharan Africa will transpire? I'm a massive tech nerd. And I know I just was like a little bit trying to pull back on over-optimism around technology solutions. But still, I I do think that the idea that sub-Saharan Africa and other poor regions have the chance to be the first ever in human history to build energy systems of the future from the ground up is really exciting. And, you know, I'm not just talking about the simplistic idea of leapfrogging, but just the long-term opportunity created by the limited constraints of legacy infrastructure, plus our rich endowment of the kinds of resources that will underpin this new energy future. I think if we play our cards right, there's something there that could, again, like build this leverage I'm talking about and kind of reset the balance that the world is learning from us. And, you know, I just really hope that we don't squander this chance. So, Giles, what would you say now to someone who told you the energy transition is something that we're doing and other countries are failing to do? Well, actually, I'd say that that sounds a bit arrogant. I mean, as Harsh was telling us, it's it's really difficult to generalise. Every country's dealing with their own set of circumstances is, in a sense, on its own path. And these sort of black and white narratives about countries like China being the quote-unquote worst emitters often fail to take into account their very particular political and economic circumstances. So, for example, in China's case, they are the biggest uh, emitter in the world at the moment, but they also have delivered huge economies of scale for every other country in the world in wind and solar. And I think that we're beholden in the richer parts of the world to be mindful of the different pressures that countries face as they develop and to realise when we're being hypocritical about green energy standards that we'd like to see applied all over the world. I am optimistic. As Rose pointed out, it's not a utopia on the horizon, but advances in tech do mean that there's immense opportunity here to unlock a greener energy future for everyone. We're all on this journey one way or another, and I have no problem with naming and shaming, but particularly with countries who have to be a part of a broader global effort like China, pointing fingers isn't going to get us very far. You've been listening to Inside the Energy Transition, a podcast from Tortoise Media and Centre for Net Zero. A big thanks to our guests this week, Harsh Vijay Singh, Isabel Hilton and Rose Mutiso. Find out more about Centre for Net Zero and what we do on centrefornetzero.org. And if you're new to Tortoise, we've got a weekly newsletter called The Net Zero Sensemaker, which tells you everything you need to know about getting to net zero. To sign up for that and more journalism from our newsroom, just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash invite and use my code Giles50 for 50% off membership. Tune in next time when we're talking about decentralization of energy generation. 
we'll learn how ordinary people can own part of a wind turbine or a solar array, what the consequences are for local communities, and whether these tech-enabled platforms are really the future. This episode was produced by the superlatively patient Phil Sanson, with support from Izzy Woolgar. The executive producer is Kerry Thomas. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review or recommend us to a friend. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work... What do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.